0: Hi there. I'm Erie Times News online reporter Sarah Grabski. Thanks so much for joining us today for this special series podcast of That Thing We Do. It's funny how 15 years flies. That's what I've heard when I've been sharing I'm working on a podcast focused on the 15th anniversary of the pizza bomber bank robbery in Erie. It was a definite where were you when moment for most in this city. Situated on Lake Erie at the intersection of Interstates 90 and 79. Fifteen years later, and people all over the nation still have lingering questions about the events that unfolded that August day, and who was responsible for them. You're listening to the first of a two-part special series focusing on Erie's pizza bomber case. You'll hear about the facts, some of the details, and players involved in the case. Episode two takes a look at unanswered questions surrounding the case and delves into the investigation. Before we begin, I should refer you to go Eerie's comprehensive pizza bomber coverage, which ranges from the day of the bombing to the most recent updates in mid-August, which included Marjorie Deal Armstrong's alleged common-law husband requesting her remains be turned over to him. Find stories, videos, photo galleries, and more at goerie.com topics pizza hyphen bomber. Today, we look back on the case, but perhaps more importantly, we'll take a look at some of those unanswered questions. Enjoy. Thursday, August 28, 2003, began just like any other day for most in Erie, Pennsylvania. And yet, perhaps it's a day that this city, and maybe this nation, will never forget. It was a sunny, clear day. It was around 1.30 p.m., and the phone rang at Mama Mia's Pizzeria, a small pizza shop squeezed into a strip mall at 5154 Peach Street that still exists in that location today. You'd drive right by it if you didn't know it were there. Its deep red brick facade is topped with an evergreen paneled awning. The store's owner, Tony DiTomo, picked up the call and heard a deep male voice on the other end. The caller's voice drifted in and out. He ordered two small pizzas with pepperoni and sausage. And when he began to give directions to the location of the delivery, DeTomo handed the phone over to his delivery driver working at the time, Brian Wells. The caller told Wells he'd like the pizzas delivered to an Upper Peach Street location, the site of the TV transmission tower for WSEE-TV, the local CBS affiliate. Erie's Peach Street is known as one of the most traffic-filled roads in the city. It stretches all the way from downtown Erie south to Summit Township, the site where the caller was asking for delivery. Traffic was heavy that day, in light of the upcoming Labor Day holiday. Visitors from nearby Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Buffalo packed Erie eager for a weekend beach getaway, followed by the eats and shopping that lined Peach Street. Wells, Forty Six. Was a recovering alcoholic. He'd worked for Mamma Mia's as a pizza delivery driver for around nine years. He was around 175 pounds and he stood five feet, nine inches. He owned a 1996 greenish blue standard Chevy Geo Metro that he'd just paid back the loan on about a week earlier. Wells wasn't married and he didn't have kids. He lived with his three cats in a five room cottage that he rented. His friends and coworkers described him as childlike, reliable, routine-driven. That Thursday morning, Wells had woken up around 7:15 a.m. He bought a copy of the Erie Times News, ate breakfast at a McDonald's, and he drove to Mama Mia's, where he was scheduled to work from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Wells was Mama Mia's only driver that afternoon. The call was his sixth and final delivery of the day. He scribbled down the address, 8631 Peach Street, and the directions New Motors Radio Towers first left. He stuffed the finished pizzas in insulated bags and he walked to his car. He left Mamma Mia's and turned out onto Peach Street south toward the radio tower site, 1.47 p.m. Even though there was a lot of it, traffic moved quickly through the stoplights and past eateries and department stores along Erie's Peach Street. The tower location Wells was delivering to intersected with Peach Street via a dirt road. The sign for 8631 stood at the end of the dirt road in a small green clearing. Right next to the TV tower site was 8645 Peach Street, a house owned by a man named Bill Rothstein. Wells, though investigators didn't know it at the time, had been down this dirt road before. He turned left onto the road and onto crunching gravel. He stopped just shy of the tower, and he got out with the pizzas. It was 2 p.m. A gun went off. And silence. 2.27 p.m. Wells walked into the PNC Bank, 7200 Peach Street. He was wearing what looked to be a neck brace. He had on two t-shirts, a gray one underneath and a baggy white one, with guest jeans written across the front in large, dark letters. He carried a blackish-brown cane with a curved handle that looked like the handle of a gun, and a metal collar that encircled his neck with a box that bulged underneath the white T-shirt. He approached the desk, despite the chief teller, Barbara Lipinski, telling him to wait his turn. He handed her a note. She knew right away what this was, A veteran teller, she realized this was a demand note. The envelope held four pages of eight and a half by 11-inch paper. A blue stripe highlighted the bottom of each page. Hand-printed words the size of typewriter type covered the sheets. The note read, Do not cause panic or many people will be killed. Sounding any alarm will interrupt this action and guarantee injuries and death. Involving authorities at this point will get this hostage and other people killed. The note went on to say Wells was wearing a bomb that was, quote, booby-trapped, end quote, and couldn't be disarmed unless keys were found following the instructions. Bomb hostage needs less than 20 minutes in the bank, it stated, and 30 minutes to deliver. No money, no keys. Another part of the note was directed to the bank manager. This part included the amount of money the robbers wanted, $250,000, an amount that no bank would likely have on hand. Act now, think later, or you will die, the note read. It stated Wells would get directions to deactivate the bomb once the money was in their possession. It was signed, The Troubleshooters. The troubleshooters instructed the bank to wait one hour after Wells returned to contact police. The fourth page of the note was directed toward police, warning them to stand down and let the heist carry on. The note warned if the bomb hostage was delayed for more than 10 minutes that he would not have enough time to continue on, then boasted that the team had spent a combined seven and a half years perfecting this scheme. Wells then asked to speak to a manager, and Lipinski left the counter momentarily. When she returned, he was sucking a dum-dum's lollipop, one that he'd taken from a basket sitting on the counter that was intended for the children of PNC customers. She told him the manager wouldn't return until 3 p.m. He told her to give him what she had on hand. She ravaged her drawer and other tellers' drawers to come up with $8,702, and she handed it to him in a white canvas bag. He told her it wasn't enough, and Lipinski told him it was all she had. He turned around and walked out, lollipop in mouth, twirling the bag of cash in his left hand and swinging the cane in his right hand. He spent 11 minutes inside the bank. According to some eyewitnesses, he looked like Charlie Chaplin walking out of the bank that day. Now for a brief break. 2:38 p.m. 3911 calls followed Wells exit of the bank. One customer who was inside the bank watched Wells pull up to the McDonald's nearby in his rearview mirror. State police were dispatched at 2.40 p.m. After trying to drive his car through the drive through lane of the bank and failing, he drove onto the main road to Summit Town Center, and he pulled into the parking lot of McDonald's where the caller spotted him. He got down, lifted up a rock next to the drive through sign, and grabbed a piece of paper stuck to the bottom of it. His eyes lifted toward the Eaton Park restaurant on the other side of Peach Street. Wells returned to his car, and he started down a back street near McDonald's and ended up in the parking lot of Eyeglass World, where a state police cruiser stopped him and flashed its lights behind him. Eleven more minutes had passed since he left the bank. 2.49 p.m. State police got Wells out of his car and on his knees beside the Geo Metro. State police on scene noticed he had something hanging off his neck and protruding from his white t-shirt, Wells told them it was a ticking time bomb. The troopers fell back. State police phoned Erie police, the only local department with a bomb squad at that point. 3.04 p.m. Erie's police station is located six miles north of the Summit Town Center. More troopers had arrived and began questioning Wells, at this point who was sitting cross-legged on the pavement. They asked what happened and what was going on. He said he had a bomb on his chest and it was locked on him by a group of black men, that he was forced to rob the bank. He claimed a black man put the bomb around his neck and ordered him to rob the bank, and three other black men were following him to make sure he obeyed. He said he tried to get away, but the black guy fired a gun. He wasn't hit, but he fell to the ground when the man locked the bomb to him. He said he had specific written instructions inside his geo he was to follow. Wells asked to call his employer. He asked for a cigarette and he asked to get the bomb off. Two state police troopers approached Wells to see if the bomb was real. One cut the white t-shirt a few inches to reveal the bomb. A box hung from a black metal collar. In the lower corner of the grayish blue box to Wells' right hung a plastic digital clock mounted sideways. Steel mesh covered its opening, which held a nest of red, green, and yellow wires. The metal collar looked like a blown-up handcuff. A warning was engraved on it. Do not open. Do not remove. A small box made of metal was fastened to the side of the collar and contained a small three-dial combination lock that looked like something that would be found on the side of a suitcase, investigators said. Next to the combo lock, four tiny keyhole locks sat side by side. Wells begged for the bomb to come off. He asked for a priest. For ten seconds, the timer dinged. Beep. Wells turned slightly. It was a moment that no one could have ever expected. The explosion was ear-piercing. Witnesses said it could be heard from as far as a mile away. 3.18 three hundred eighteen PM and silence. Heartbreaking ear deafening jaw dropping silence. Brian Wells chest rose and fell one last time. The explosion killed him. Bystanders described the silence that followed the explosion as eerie, creepy. On what is normally one of the region's busiest streets, dense with stores, restaurants, and hotel activity, no one moved. It had been just 51 minutes after Wells walked into the bank, and 14 minutes after the bomb squad had been called. Three minutes after the explosion, the bomb squad arrived. With the traffic and the distance, they'd driven as fast as they could. Law enforcement stood back to prepare for any secondary explosions to follow. They were scrambling. Most on scene believed there was no way this bomb was actually real. Investigators did not even know where to begin in trying to piece together some sort of look into what actually just happened in the 91 minutes prior. Traffic was at a standstill on Peach Street. Officials shut it down from Oliver Road to Hershey Road, and it remained closed all night and into Friday morning. Wells' body was not cleared from the pavement until 4.30 a.m. the following day, even though Erie County Deputy Coroner Karak Tymon declared him dead at 5.45 p.m. Thursday, two hours following the detonation. The intense investigation began in a hurry. Police stormed the TV tower site desperately searching for the black man Brian Wells had previously described in his last few moments alive. But they didn't find him there. There were no pizza boxes, no shell casings, no sign of a struggle. Police helicopters buzzed overhead, surveilling the area for any sign of the described men and taking aerial photographs for evidence. Investigators walked into Mamma Mia's 25 minutes after the bomb went off to interrogate Wells' boss, Detomo. They determined the call that was placed, from the deep-voiced man, was made from a payphone. Notes were found in Wells' car, put there by the same people who wrote the bank demand. The notes gave Wells specific instructions outlining where he was to go and exactly what he was to do to save his life. The notes instructed him to drive 60 miles per hour throughout the course and only use two to three minutes at each stop, sending him on a human scavenger hunt to find keys that would disarm the bomb. Investigators gathered information about Wells and searched his home in the 2400 block of Loveland Avenue, a small white cottage. Among the items that the FBI removed from his house were two spiral notebooks that had been sitting on a desk Handwritten names, mostly just first names, and corresponding phone numbers filled a page in one of the books. One woman listed on the page was Jessica. Law enforcement scoured at least three locations, two in the woods off of I-79 near McCain Township, hoping for some sort of immediate answer or direction. As investigators reached what would be their final location in the scavenger hunt, before they could see what awaited them, They saw a white van pulling away from the scene, just off of I 79 near the McCain exit. Someone had gotten there before them. As law enforcement officials worked deep into the weekend attempting to find something pointing them toward who exactly was responsible for the bombing, the FBI got an unexpected call. It was a call for another body. Sunday, just three days after Wells died in the bombing, one of his colleagues at Mamma Mia's Pizza, Robert Panetti, died at his home. Investigators never got the chance to interview or talk to Panetti on record. Panetti, 43, died of a drug overdose. The autopsy showed he had methadone and Xanax in his body at the time. He had a drug problem. A local hospital treated him for an overdose that spring, but there was no trauma. And no suicide note. Panetti's mother found him just before 9 a.m. unresponsive in their home. What was even perhaps weirder is that paramedics were called to Panetti's home around 5 a.m. that morning when his mother woke up to find him unconscious in the bathroom. Paramedics revived him, but he told him that he drank a lot of beer that night and refused to go to the hospital. Investigators were scheduled to talk to Panetti that Monday, but that Monday never came for Panetti. They described him as nervous, panicked, even, vague. Panetti had unsuccessfully tried to get a gun from his sister after he got off work that Saturday when law enforcement officials contacted him. His behavior appeared anything but ordinary. It puzzled investigators. Was Brian Wells a victim or a bank robber? That's the question investigators were itching to answer. Relatives and friends described Wells as timid, innocent, loving. They believed there was no possible way he could have been involved in such a scheme. But an arrest report the Erie Times News obtained from 1991 showed a different version of Brian Wells, one who threatened to, quote, put a bullet, end quote, in his neighbor's head and burned down their homes. He wanted his neighbors evicted, and when former District Justice Joe Weindorf ruled against him, he threatened to shoot him too. He was charged with harassment by communication, a charge that was later dropped, and pleaded guilty to a second charge, harassment, in a summary offense. The FBI's behavioral unit in Quantico analyzed the notes and started putting together a profile It went like this. The offender likes power. He's obsessive, manipulative, patient. This offender invested a great deal of thought and planning into this scheme, which could have evolved over a long period of time. It's possible Wells knew the offender and misjudged the level of danger. Revenge is a theme repeated throughout the letters, along with certain dire consequences if instructions were not strictly followed. The profiler said the person was skillful at working with wood and metal, and would possibly have received vocational and technical training. Known to friends as a handyman, fascinated with building or acquiring weapons, secretive, deceptive. Meanwhile, the FBI set up a hotline for tips that was flooded with leads, all of which they had to catalog and to pursue. One came in from a 64-year-old man, Tom Sedwick. He observed a heavily tanned woman with shoulder-length dark hair driving a GMC van the wrong way on I-79 the afternoon of the bombing. All kinds of other tips ended up being false leads. More on this in episode two. The FBI was dumping time and resources into figuring this case out. On September 9, 2003, the Bureau designated the Wells investigation, Major Case 203, the highest status an investigation can get. Investigators decided to drive the route to see if Wells could have physically had enough time to complete the scavenger hunt, get all four keys at the four stops laid out, and successfully disarmed the bomb. One of the lead FBI investigators in the case, Jerry Clark, drove the route himself. He discovered there was no way Wells could have survived. Even if everything went according to the bomber's plan, and he followed all the directions carefully, the only way he could have lived is if someone were there to restart the timer or to give him more time at one of the stops after nearly a month of searching for any sign of what really unfolded on August 28, 2003. Investigators got the big break they were looking for in this case on the night of September twentieth. It came in the form of a body being reported in a freezer at 8645 Peach Street. Bill Rostein lived at 8645 Peach, if you recall, less than a mile away from the site where Wells was called to deliver pizzas on August twenty Mr. Rothstein... Uh, We're conducting an investigation along with the state police in regards to telephone conversation you had uh, the night uh, before. Saturday night. Saturday night first, in which uh, you initiated uh, calls to the state police. Uh, Could you explain what that was all about? Okay, that was basically... uh there was a person I had known since uh, the late 60s or early 70s. used to date. She had a body in her house that she wanted to remove. I helped her with it. Uh, we, I put it basically in my garage. <laughs> Excuse me, at sir. That, and that Saturday, she wanted it completely destroyed. Okay, the woman being Marjorie. Armstrong, Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Marjorie Deal's her a maiden name, Marjorie Armstrong. Armstrong was her ma- married name. Law enforcement knocked on Rostein's door that August day, and they did interview Rothstein, but he said he never went back there and he hadn't heard anything. They really didn't have any further reason to believe someone so geographically close to where the collar bomb was put on Wells would somehow be involved. It was 8.14 p.m. on September 20th when Rostein called 911 to report the body in the freezer. He called to report that a woman by the name of Marjorie Deal Armstrong had killed the man, her former boyfriend, Jim Roden, and that she was currently in his home. Keep in mind that just minutes before he made the call, Rothstein was standing in his kitchen with Deal Armstrong with an ice crusher, poised to cut up Roden's body into tiny pieces. Rothstein told law enforcement officials he had nothing to do with the murder, but simply helped Deal Armstrong dispose of the body and the evidence. Rothstein did a great job erasing much of the evidence of Rodin's murder. He scrubbed and refurbished Rodin's apartment and moved Rodin's mattress and box springs to his garage. He deposited most everything else from the apartment, flooring, the bed headboard and footboard, rails, and frame, and more at Lakeview Landfill, owned by Waste Management, a five-minute drive from his house. Investigators were never able to find any of it. He visited the landfill seven times after he hauled Roden's body out of Deal Armstrong's house that she shared with Roden, 1867 East 7th Street. On September 13th, he unloaded 1,040 pounds of debris, all of which he said were from a storage center, Summit Storage Center, 8971 Peach, just south of his house. First, I should tell you the history that Rothstein and Deal Armstrong shared. The pair had known each other for more than 30 years. The two first started dating in the early 1970s, after Rothstein studied electrical engineering at the University of Toledo in Ohio. He didn't graduate, but he returned to his hometown of Erie to work for his parents, who founded and owned Rolla Bottling Company the home of a local soft drink called Rola cola Deal Armstrong was finishing up school at Mercyhurst College at the time. The two were engaged in the early 1970s for nine months. They split, yet they stayed in touch. A few years down the road, Deal Armstrong was charged in the death of live-in boyfriend Bob Thomas in 1984, but she was acquitted of all charges with a battered woman defense. She opened fire on him with a revolver as he laid on the couch in their rented house at 3917 Sunset Boulevard. In late September 2003, Rostein and Deal Armstrong were no longer a couple, but together again with a common bond, Rodin's body in the freezer. Rothstein would be the first to tell you he was the smartest person around. He eventually obtained a bachelor's degree in education from Edinburgh University and he found work as a substitute shop and science teacher at area school districts, including Erie School District. In fact, he was so good with his hands that a principal in the district and the athletic director both hired him to do electrical work in their homes. He wore overalls to class, and he was known for being, quote, able to build anything, end quote. Deal Armstrong was plagued with mental illness from the age of 12. It took root in her life and her mental health worsened as she was recovering from anorexia. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder by extreme narcissism, her grandiose belief that she was perfect and deserved perfection and that she was only worthy of the best. She first received psychiatric treatment in 1972 when she was just 23 years old. In addition, Deal Armstrong was a hoarder. She hoarded all kinds of things, like food and trash and she hoarded money. She had a troubled relationship with her father, Harold, when it came to money. Deal Armstrong's mother, Agnes Deal, died at 83 in July 2000. Deal Armstrong claimed Harold Deal, executor of Agnes Deal's estate, was freely giving away her money, $100,000 to one neighbor, $50,000 to another, she believed her father was wasting her inheritance. Hello? Margie, hello? Yeah, what kind of check was that? You should send it to my lawyer. What? Send it to my lawyer. Uh, I already sent it to you. Oh. Yeah, I was kind down of there. What the check was it, Dad? Will you listen a minute? Quit screaming, Dad. What kind of a check was it? I just saw the doctor and he It did. was a cashier's check that they asked for. i um, And I was... If you were listening, damn you. Yeah. You mean for my commissary, Dad? Yes. All right, that's good. And and if any checks... They wouldn't, they wouldn't, I was right there and had it in my hand. They they wouldn't let me give it to you. They only have certain hours. You got to mail it. Yeah, you got to mail, I was going to tell you. That's the rule. The investigation into Jim Roden's death took police to Deal Armstrong's 7th Street house. Roden had lived in the apartment upstairs, she told police. That's where she'd shot him. They arrested her at Rothstein's house shortly after 3 a.m., after they'd interviewed Rothstein. What they found was not pleasant. Strong odors of animal feces and urine overtook police when they began to search her house. Trash was piled nearly to the ceiling. It was so repulsive that the Erie County Department of Health determined the house was unsafe to search. A city housing inspector declared the home uninhabitable. It certainly put a snafu on the investigation. Rothstein's house was similarly trashed, but not to the extent of Deal Armstrong's. Investigators didn't know where to start searching or what to take in as evidence and what to leave. They found the ice crusher. They also found what appeared to be a handwritten suicide note, three pages in large print and signed by Bill Rothstein. It was numbered. One. One. This had nothing to do with the Wells case. Two, the body in the freezer in the garage is Jim Roden. Three, I did not kill him nor participate in his death. Four, my apologies to those who cared for or about me. I am sorry that I let them down. Five, I am sorry to leave you this mess. Bill Rosting Investigators were convinced it was no coincidence Bill Rostein's house was just feet away from the site where allegedly the collar bomb was put on Brian Wells. They gave him a lie detector test. He passed it. Back at state police barracks, Deal Armstrong told investigators Rostein had Floyd Stockton living with him. Stockton, a 56-year-old registered sex offender, was wanted on charges in Washington state that he raped a mentally disabled 19-year-old woman. They did not find Stockton in Rothstein's house. They later picked him up after his girlfriend, K.W., told the FBI they lived together at her apartment in Girard. Stockton was first incarcerated in the early 1960s for stealing a car. He met Rothstein in 1968 when he stopped by Rolla-Cola Bottling Company to buy beer, and Rothstein was working the register. The two, who shared the same birth date, became fast friends. In the 1970s, Stockton faced marijuana charges again. After some prison time, he left Erie to head out west to Montana, where he was convicted of rape in 1983 and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He stayed out west after his release and moved to Washington, where he stayed with a woman and her family, including the woman's 19-year-old mentally disabled daughter. In May 2002, he was accused of raping her. He fled. His intentions were to end up in Portland, Maine, but he stopped to visit his old pal Rothstein on the way and ended up staying to work for Rothstein to fix up the house and work for his handyman business, Redstone Electric Company. Stockton said he stopped living with Rothstein and moved in with his girlfriend two or three weeks before September 21st, which put him at Rothstein's house the day of the bombing. FBI investigators gave him a lie detector test. He also passed. He waived extradition to Washington and was sent back, sentenced to two years in prison and three to four years of probation for his crime. Deal Armstrong was charged in Roden's death. State police and Erie police were investigating the Rodin case. District Attorney Brad Folk said he would give Rothstein consideration in the cover-up of Roden's killing if he agreed to testify against Deal Armstrong. He agreed. Folk hadn't eliminated the possibility of prosecuting him for something related to Rodin's death, and he warned Rothstein that he would rescind the offer if police caught him lying. Rothstein cooperated fully in the Rodin investigation, and he held up his end of the deal. Erie police and state police asked Rothstein to take them through tours of Deal Armstrong's home and his home to show them where everything happened. After her home had been fumigated, of course. Uh she thought that when I, pull, okay, when I pulled the body off, the feet were out here, I could not get it down here because this door was closed. And he couldn't open up the door and do it. So what I had to do was I went past Mr. Witowski and probably pulled the body, I don't know, probably as little as possible, pulled the feet would have been into here so that I could open that door. Ross Dean remained steadfast that he had nothing to do with the Wells case despite what investigators believed were some obvious connections and clues. A principal who supervised Rothstein said he appeared to match the profile of the type of person the FBI was saying would carry out the bombing. At Deal Armstrong's January 2004 preliminary hearing, Rothstein testified she had told him she killed Roden. After the trial was over... Deal Armstrong told reporters he was a filthy liar and that he should be prosecuted for the death of Brian Wells. Their opportunity to question Rothstein was closing quickly. He was terminally ill and rapidly declining. Bill Rothstein died on July thirtieth, two 2004, at 60 years old, of cancer. He never stood charges in Rodin's death. He never got the opportunity to testify against Deal Armstrong on trial. Deal Armstrong, who also suffers from bipolar disorder, was transferred from the Erie County Prison to Mayview State Hospital near Pittsburgh for a long-term psychiatric evaluation in the Roden case. In the meantime, she was off limits to investigators because of her mental state. Tom Sedwick, who called the FBI tip line with reports he saw a woman driving the wrong way on I-79 the day of the bombing, recognized Deal Armstrong. She was the woman, he said. Another witness backed up his statement. Tom Bolin said he saw the car, but he didn't catch a glimpse of the driver. A third witness called the FBI to tell them he recognized Brian Wells' car. He'd seen it the day before going down that dirt road where he said he got the bomb put on him. Deal Armstrong pled guilty but mentally ill to third-degree murder in Roden's death in Erie County Court. She was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in state prison. She had been questioned by the FBI regarding the Wells case at least once when she was at the state correctional institution near Muncie, near Williamsport in central Pennsylvania. She was transferred back to SCI Cambridge Springs on June 22, 2005. Two years after the bombing, investigators were still working on wrapping up the case. They had not yet made the determination whether Wells was involved or innocent, despite reports that he had been seen on that dirt road the day before the bombing. In 2006, FBI investigators felt they had another big break. They were searching the home of Kenneth Barnes, an old fishing buddy of Deal Armstrong's. Deal Armstrong told investigators that Barnes... 52 was behind the bombing. Rastine told investigators that she knew Barnes through Roden. In fact, their relationship turned unpleasant quickly. Deal Armstrong accused Barnes of burglarizing her home in late May 2003. She said $133,000 in cash was stolen from her home and identified Barnes as the person whose voice she heard during the break-in. Erie police investigated, but they made no arrests. Court records show she was obsessed with the supposed house burglary, and it played a role in what police said was her decision to fatally shoot Rodin. She bought a shotgun to protect herself in response to it, was her story. The more investigators learned about the robbery, the more they questioned whether it actually happened. The initial amount that Deal Armstrong reported stolen was $2,800, according to the police report. Barnes was undoubtedly involved, Deal Armstrong said. One theory involved Barnes traveling in the same gold colored car Deal Armstrong was spotted in driving the wrong way on I 79 that day. Barnes was sentenced in August 2006 to 11.5 to 23 months in Erie County Prison on drug charges. Then came the last break investigators needed. One that involved a prostitute whose name investigators found written in a notebook recovered from Brian Wells' home. If you recall, one of the names that was in one of the notebooks was Jessica. The woman, Jessica Hoopsick, confirmed that Wells knew Barnes. The night before the bombing, Hoopsick said she and Wells spoke to Barnes at the corner of East 11th and Parade Streets in Erie to buy crack. Hoopsick also said she recognized the name of Robert Panetti. She went before a grand jury with this information. Barnes said that although he knew Wells and Deal Armstrong, he had nothing to do with Wells' death. Investigators believed they had enough to press charges and for them to stick, finally, in July 2007. The federal grand jury indictments named Wells as an unindicted co-conspirator in the scheme that saw him rob what was then the PNC Bank. The indictments allege that Wells helped plan the plot with the two indicted co-conspirators, Deal Armstrong and Barnes, and the other named unindicted co-conspirator Rothstein. Stockton, who was also believed to have had a role in the case, was granted immunity in exchange for his testimony against Rothstein. But he was never able to testify due to an illness. Deal Armstrong and Barnes each were charged with armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and using and carrying a destructive device, the homemade bomb, during and relating to a crime of violence. In 2008, Barnes pled guilty before U.S. District Judge Sean McLaughlin to conspiracy to commit bank robbery as well as using a destructive device during a crime of violence, both felonies. McLaughlin sentenced Barnes, then 54, to 45 years in federal prison. He agreed to testify against Deal Armstrong. Judge McLaughlin ruled Deal Armstrong incompetent for trial, largely because of her bipolar disorder. He ordered her to undergo more mental health exams in the federal prison system. A year later, in 2009, he found her competent to stand trial. Deal Armstrong shared publicly in spring 2010 that she had breast cancer. Regardless, she stood trial in 2010. At a court hearing, McLaughlin reviewed a physician's report that stated Deal Armstrong had three to seven years to live. The prosecutor said he wanted to proceed with the trial. After deliberating 11 hours and 30 minutes over two days... On November 1st, 2010, a jury convicted Deal Armstrong of all the charges. Judge McLaughlin sentenced her to life in prison, plus 30 years, in 2011. Marjorie Deal Armstrong died in 2017 while serving her sentence at Federal Medical Center Carswell in Fort Worth, Texas. She was 68. This story is far from over for most of Erie. Questions? You're not the only one. Tune into part two of this special edition podcast series to hear from Jerry Clark, the lead FBI investigator on this case, now a retired agent and professor at Gannon University. He'll explain and delve into the key players, their roles, and more facts you may not know about Erie's pizza bomber case 15 years later.